there's coming a moment when millions of Christians, maybe billions, will suddenly disappear. It's called the rapture. And we talk about that and the tribulation today. We're talking about Revelation, where anything could happen at any time. Isn't that right, Josh Pereira? That's right, Pastor Tim. I mean, I'm so excited. This is the deep end. Okay, everybody, don't don't freak out. Relax. I'm still here. So <laughs> if I'm way. still here, you know the rapture hasn't happened. That's all I have to say about that. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you for enduring our very corny cold open here on the uh, Deep End Episode 9 of Season 2, talking about the rapture. And I know you've been waiting for this in our Revelation studies, because this is mostly why people go to Revelation. They want to know when are things happening? Who is the dictator beast? Who is the Antichrist? All those kind of things. And we get really tied up in that. And so you got to go through those first seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. And we did that for the previous few episodes. And now we're going to get into that interesting stuff. We're going to get into the tribulation, the rapture today. And uh, this should be exciting. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Yes, sir. Are you ready for the rapture? That's the better question right there. Mm. (laughs) So today we're going to talk a little bit about news first before we get into Revelation. Now, uh, it is Christmas decoration season. So have you decorated your house? Yeah, we started on uh, Black Friday. Black Friday you did. Very good. I did on Thanksgiving morning, 23 degrees. I was decorating my house. Wow. Yep. That's called dedication. Now I got halfway done and I let Cheryl do the rest (laughs) after she was done cooking the turkey. (laughs) While we ate. No, I'm just kidding. Ah, <laughs> uh, just go joking. She actually finished it up though, <laughs> like the next Monday. I don't know. Um, houses getting decorated. Jeremy, you've decorated your house. Yes? Yeah, we did Black Friday as well. Yeah, yeah, Black Friday. Yeah, I went to the store on Black Friday. The lines were crazy. I don't know why I went to the store. I don't know. Crazy. Did you buy anything? I did not buy anything because the line literally was wrapped all the way around the department store. You know how you walk to the department store? There's all these like aisles. Mm. You know, and you could almost like if you wanted to get exercise in the winter, you could go to a department store, just run around. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. If you're, well, <laughs> if you're like 75. Yeah, if you're 75. <laughs> you know, things to think about, to look forward to. <laughs> Gotta wear the jogging suit, you know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, this line went from the registers and wrapped literally all the way around the lap of the department store. So I walked in and I walked out. I said, no way, I'm not going to do that. And so I think that's the better option. Decorate your house on Good Friday. Good for you people. Mm. Cyber Monday. Get some deals. Anybody? So, you guys are full of talking today. Cyber Monday. No, I didn't. No? no I, I bought like one thing. Yeah. yeah. I didn't buy anything either. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's move on because it is Christmas, <laughs> Christmas decoration season. There is a news item from the Christian Post. Uh, I think it's ChristianPost.com. Anyway, they have this headline. Listen to this headline. HOA, which means Housing uh, Association. I forget what it's called. Housing. What is that? Homeowners Association. Homeowners. Home, homeowners Association. That's right. Mm. Homeowners Association opposed family's Christmas display because it might offend atheists, attract Walmart riffraff. <laughs> now, is, that, is that a demographic? Evidently, people? this is a demographic. Yes. <laughs> Walmart uh, riffraff. Walmart riffraff. I, I like Walmart. What's wrong with Walmart? But anyway, this I, Idaho, a Northern Idaho family, Christian family, they go el- elaborate 
in their Christmas decorations of their house. And so the Neighborhood Association filed a lawsuit challenging the legality. Check this out. This is crazy to think about this. Challenging the legality of decorating their home because it might offend people who aren't Christians. Wow. Now, you know, I'm always telling you guys about how the temperature of persecution against Christians is very slowly getting turned up, very slowly, especially in America. Um, but it's happening. But this is crazy because, first off, they have every right to decorate their house however they want. I mean, it's their property, for heaven's sakes. You know, this is, and they're Christians, and they want to be you know, elaborate. And they, and they have this whole thing where they, they, people can come in and get, I guess they can get... Uh, what is it? Free hot chocolate, cotton candy, and they do this week-long thing for the kids. Anyway, good news is the North Idaho jury awarded Jeremy and Christy Morris, the owners of this house, $75,000 in their lawsuit against the Homeowners Association, and they actually won their lawsuit that they didn't actually bring up, the, the Homeowners Association did. So uh, the interesting thing is the letter that the Homeowners Association sent to the family, which is kind of shocking just to listen to what they said. Here was the letter that they wrote addressing their uh, what they felt were inappropriate Christmas decorations. I am somewhat hesitant in bringing up the fact that some of our residents are non-Christians or another faith, and I don't even want to think about the problems that this could bring up. We do not wish to become entwined in any expensive litigation to enforce long-standing rules and regulations or fill our neighborhood with the hundreds of people and possible undesirables. So that's the letter that they sent. But in the course of the trial, someone unearthed the original draft of the letter. And the original draft of the letter... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, little bit more uh, strongly worded. And here's the original draft. I am somewhat hesitant to bring up the fact that some of our residents are avowed atheists. And I don't even want to think about the problems that could bring up. We do not wish to become entwined in any expensive litigation to enforce longstanding rules and regulations and fill our neighborhood with the riffraff you seem to attract over by Walmart, Gross Meadows indeed. I guess then that's G-R-O-U-S-E is this other, other neighborhood. <laughs> so Gross Meadows indeed. We don't allow those kind in our neighborhood. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I think that's kind of just a funny news item there. Thankfully, the Christian uh, family here won the lawsuit. But yeah, it seems like they, they won enough to pay the four electric bills worth of yes. Christmas. <laughs> Consider your electric bills paid, courtesy of your homeowners association, if they ever pay. Uh, but that's really a funny um, news item. I thought interesting, you know, decorate your house for heaven's sakes. It's your house. It's called freedom of religion. And I know that this is what happens, though. You see, like the people saying, "No, we need we need the religious stuff out of our schools. No, we need it out of our governments too. Oh, and we need it out of public properties. Oh, and by the way, now we're going to need it off of your property." You know, yeah. pretty much freedom of religion is being squeezed by the by the secularists, being squeezed down to this very narrow definition of, "Okay, we'll allow you to pray quietly in your closet when nobody can see <laughs> ever, and outside of that." You cannot practice your religion. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's where it's going. Anyway, good thing is we're uh, studying Revelation. That'll help you address uh, and help you just know, look, this has happened for a long time. Christians have always been hated and Christians have always been persecuted in many different areas and eras and generations. And so, you know, nothing to worry about because we know who's on the throne. And that brings us to our study on the book of Revelation.
Okay, I was asking a question of the team earlier today, and I want to ask it here on the air now, and I want to ask you in the comments, too. Let me know in the comments, and by the way, if you're watching Facebook Live, YouTube Live, uh, let us know in the comments um, where you're watching from. We always like to find that out. And then I want to ask you a question. When you think of the book of Revelation, what do you primarily think it's about? Josh? Um... I've always been taught it's about the end times, what's going to happen in the future. The future. Yeah. J Jeremy, over there, our tech guy. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, same uh, it's like uh, a movie trailer for what's going to happen, like a preview, a little bit of what's going to happen in the end times. Movie trailer. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, definitely. And Maddie, you're, you don't have a mic, but same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and Maddie, you, you're a recent, uh, a recent Christian. You're not a, you haven't been raised Christian. And, and so, you know, even non-Christians or people who were raised non-Christian have this image that the book of Revelation is about the things that are uh, only in the future. But what if, okay, what if it's not only about the future? Do you know that historically there are four views of the book of Revelation? Four views. Now, I don't want to... Uh, upend the apple cart entirely here because the book of Revelation is about what is to come. Uh, the, in t the, the book itself says this is about what is to come because look at what happens here in Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That means things that are going to happen in the future, which he made known by sending his angel to his servant John. Or right in verse 19 of the same chapter, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. But notice in verse 19, there's three categories of things that John is commanded to write. The things that you have seen, past tense, the things that are the present tense, and the things that are yet to take place, future tense. So John is being given a revelation not just of the last, I guess, you know, the classic definition, the last seven years of human existence. He's actually being given a revelation of... Uh, the entirety of human history from recent times in his lifetime to even our generation today. But that has not stopped the prognosticators of our age from giving us endless, uh, copious amounts of end time roadmaps to tell us this is what's going to happen. So I don't know if you've ever seen this stuff. This is all over the internet. You can just do a real quick search uh, all over the internet of these things. You know, um, when is Jesus coming back? And, uh, Something like this. You see on the screen there, we've got the roadmap of Revelation, and it begins with the, um, you know, the rapture happens over here at uh, the little yellow arrow going up, and then you have Daniel 9.27, his 70th week, they call that, and so on and so forth, and then there's all kinds of things that happen. I had a bunch of others um, that were on this screen, but nonetheless, there are so many interpretations of when things are going to happen. But what if, and I'm going to ask this question again, what if Revelation is not just about what's going to happen? Historically, there have been four views of interpreting Revelation. I want to talk about that. We're going to have to go to the whiteboard for that. So let's go. The whiteboard. The whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the four views because there are four views of Revelation that I think are going to help us interpret it better because we don't have to just go after one. We can actually use multiple. So first one is called, and just uh, excuse 
the handwriting because I type everything in my life, and so my handwriting is terrible. The first is called the preterist view, and the preterist view believes that everything that happens in the book of Revelation is pre-70 AD, and because what happens in 70 AD, that's the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. And so that's the preterist view of Revelation. Then there's another view of, the Re of Revelation, which is called the historicist view. And this view interprets the events of Revelation from the cross, or the work of Jesus, to uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, Excuse my handwriting there, my drawing. I'm, I'm a frustrated artist. That's the new heavens and the earth, new earth right there. So <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, the whole of Revelation, the whole book is the entire culmination, uh, the entire, actually, what, what would you call it, description of all that's happening between his first coming and the culmination of all things, the restoration of all things. So that's the historicist view, big picture view of Revelation. And then... This one is called the Futurist View. And this view of Revelation, this is the one I think most people are familiar with. All of our people here in the studio are most familiar with this. I was raised with this view of Revelation. So here's what this means. From Revelation 4, okay, this is the last seven years of human existence um, until Revelation about 19, right? And uh, at Revelation 19, then we have the, uh, the millennium. Sorry, again, my handwriting is frustrated. But then we have the millennium. And then we have the final culmination of all things. And I'll put a new heaven and a new earth down here, right? So Revelation 4 is, talk from 4 onward, that is, is talking about the last seven years, which many people call the tribulation. And then after the tribulation, Jesus comes back with his bride, establishes a thousand-year reign that people call the millennium. And then after the millennium, um, the devil is released into the earth, and he causes a bunch more havoc. And then there's a final battle, and once and for all, uh, hell and the devil and his angels and all the people who did not receive Christ are cast into the burning lake of fire. This is fire, just in case you were wondering. And so then there's the final culmination at the end. Um, in the new heavens and the new earth. So this <clears throat> futurist view is probably the most common view that Christians and even non-Christians uh, perceive of the book of Revelation. But there's a fourth view. And the fourth view is the idealist view. And some people call this the symbolic view. You know, we could put symbolic as well. And so what does that mean? That means that everything in Revelation is a symbolic picture of the uh, eternal struggle of good and evil, of God and the enemy of our souls, Satan. And so Revelation is not literally a timeline, the idealist view. It's not like, it's not a roadmap. It's just giving us a picture of what we should think about when we think about the world. That there is a God, that there is a devil, that there is a battle, that there is a church and that the church is coming out of the world and the Lord is bringing to himself those who are his. So these are the four views. And it's kind of interesting because when you think about this in historical Christianity, the ironic reality is, 
according to historical Christianity, the most popular view, the futurist view, guess what? This is also the most recent view. Wow. So, in fact, this view was not really even practiced or thought of until, guess when? You'll never guess. Until 1830. <laughs> so most people up until the 1800s or so did not see the book of Revelation as this great unfolding of the last seven years of human history. So what does that mean? Why am I telling you this? Why am I boring you with a lesson, uh, uh, like a seminary lesson on the views of Revelation? Because when we interpret the Bible, I believe it's important, and you should believe this is important, we should look back at the history of interpretation to help us interpret in our times. I'm always talking about, and you hear me talk about this, Josh Perra, chronological snobbery, mm. which is the view that our generation has it right because we know more than previous generations, and so forget what they think, and let's just wipe that off the record books and go with what we think because we're smart, we're educated, we're informed, we're you know, products of the industrial revelation, revolution and products of the uh, internet revolution and the information age, and so blah, 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 we're all that, and those people don't know nothing, right? Well, maybe that's not the right way to approach revelation. Maybe we can gain... Maybe we can glean some important things, some really great truth from the book of Revelation that will help us interpret it rightly the way that John is asked to interpret it. Because what John is asked by the Lord is to write down what? Three things. The things that happened in the past, the things that are happening now, and the things that will happen in the future. And so... That leads us to the two great questions. Again, when we come to the book of Revelation, what are the two great questions? The two great questions that have intrigued centuries of Christianity are this. What is the tribulation? Okay. And the second question, when is the rapture? So let's take these two questions on one at a time. What is the tribulation? What is the tribulation? So when we talk about the book of Revelation, we're going to see, and you're going to see as we go through this from chapter four on, really chapter five onward, no, actually, really, chapter 6 onward. <laughs> There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. There's a lot of plagues. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of blood. And there's a lot of persecution of good people, of Christians, right? This is all over the lion's share of the book, the middle part of the book. From chapter 6 to about chapter 19, it's just death and despair and bad stuff, right? And so that portion of history, that portion of the book, people call the tribulation. Now we have uh, already seen the tribulation mentioned in the first two, uh, three chapters. Uh, when Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira, remember that we talked about this. The church in Thyatira was the church that was compromised, extremely compromised, not just compromised, extremely compromised. They weren't just embracing immorality or practicing immorality. They were teaching immorality. They had that adulterous woman prophet Jezebel. She was teaching them to engage in adultery and in paganism. And here's what Jesus says. Remember what he says to the church in Thyatira, the extremely compromised church. Behold, Revelation 2.22, I will throw her, that's the Jezebel prophetess, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. So there, Jesus is mentioning the great tribulation that is to come upon the 
extremely compromised church. Okay, so that could be, and this is an interesting thought, that could be that there are going to be Christians on the world, on the earth, that are extremely compromised who will experience the tribulation because they are so extremely compromised. It's an interesting thought. I mean, I don't know if it's true. We have to look at it, right? right. We have to think about it. But that's, this is a view of many Christians. And then he talks about the church in Sardis. And to Sardis, he says in Revelation 3, 3, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And so is that a picture of Jesus coming, and there's going to be, uh, the church in Thyatira is going to be left in the tribulation because they're compromised, and the church in Sardis, which was the dead church, uh, but there were still, if you remember, there were still a few that were alive in the church in Sardis. And so was Jesus saying, I will come like a thief, and I will suddenly... Take away the ones who are faithful to me, like we just saw so wonderfully, beautifully uh, <laughs> acted out, dramatized here on the deep end set when Josh Pereira was left behind and I was taken, which I think if it was to go down, that's how it would go down. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there would not be a little leather jacket over there waiting for no. me to. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, the, the idea though is that maybe that's what the, tra- the, 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 the church in Sardis is hearing because that's what's going to happen. And then the last church that we have to look at where the tribulation is mentioned, the church in Philadelphia, in verse 10 of chapter 3, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my word. Remember, Philadelphia was a faithful church, a church that was enduring well for the Lord. And look what he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, look what he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So is Jesus saying to the faithful church in Philadelphia, I'm going to take you out before this stuff goes down. Does this make sense? Oh, yeah. So you've got the Thyatira church, which is compromised, left. I'm just trying to explain to you a view of the the tribulation. There's going to be a church that's so compromised, they're not even really saved, and they're going to be left in the tribulation. And then there's the church in Sardis where the people who are true to faith are going to be taken and the ones who aren't are going to be left. And then Philadelphia uh, church, there's going to be this church that was faithful and they're going to be spared the tribulation. There's other passages in Revelation and in another part of the New Testament where Jesus specifically mentions the tribulation. Let's look at those passages. Revelation 7.14, we're in the middle now of the tribulation. Uh, It says this, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So there's this mention of a event, the great, notice the definite article, the great tribulation. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus talking about the end times. This is the Olivet Discourse for all the Bible scholars out there. And he's talking about what's going to happen at his return. And he says this in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation as there has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And he's talking about the end days. There's going to be such a great tribulation. It's going to be like nothing, like the Holocaust has nothing on the tribulation. When you think about that, when you think about that, this should scare you a little bit. <laughs> uh, think about the tremendous trouble and evil that has happened on the world up until this moment. And Jesus says, that's got nothing on what's going to happen at the final judgment of the world. And then, of course, Revelation 6 to 9, we have the seven sealed judgments, and then we have the seven trumpet judgments. And if you read those, you'll see blood and guts. I mean, the blood is flowing like water, and people are dying, plagues, famine, pestilence, whatever you can imagine, the worst possible apocalyptic film 
the, the top 10 apocalyptic films that you can put together into one, and that's what you have in Revelation 6 to 9. So the question is, and this is an important question, does the church go through the tribulation? And a lot of Christians are under the impression that they will not go through the tribulation. And the reason why is because of something that we call the rapture. So before we get to whether or not we go through the tribulation, which is a time of great testing where God comes and judges the earth for its rebellion and for its rejection of Christ, we have to talk about the rapture. So what is the rapture? What is the rapture? And I have a little question here on the screen. And why can't I find that word in Scripture? This is something that people will say. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Yeah. No, the rapture is not even mentioned in the Bible. So it obviously doesn't happen. Yeah, neither is the Trinity. Exactly. <laughs> neither is the Trinity. The Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, but we have enough scriptural verses in the Bible that reference the fact that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these three are one. Um to know that the Trinity, even though it is not exactly a word in the New Testament, does not necessarily mean that it is not a thing. Likewise, the rapture, though the word rapture is not in the New Testament, it doesn't mean that it's not a thing. So where does it come from, though? The word actually, rapture, comes from the Latin rapio, which means caught up. And it comes from the Latin translation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive and are left will be, and in the Latin Vulgate translation, the Catholic Bible, you, you could call it the Catholic Bible, rap, rapturo, rap, raptizo, I think it is, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So that's where we get the idea that there's going to be this rapture, this rapture of the church, this caught up, this catching up of the body of Christ to be with the Lord in the air when he comes again. And that's an important qualifier. When he comes again, how many comings of Jesus are there? Josh Pereira. Two. Two. There's two, right? There's the first coming. First and second. Yeah, and the first coming, he comes as a baby, and we're going into that season now. The baby, meek and mild, the humble man, the, you know, all the kind of stuff. The indistinguishing kind of characteristics of Jesus, just very under the radar coming. His second coming, there's a plethora of Bible verses in the New Testament talk about this. Every eye is going to see him, right? The whole world will be caught off guard. Uh, he comes like a thief, unexpected. He will come when we least expect him in many respects. Uh, he will come when things are really, really bad. He will come when, uh, in Matthew 24, he talks about this. This is a very stern warning, Jesus says, that um, the love of most will grow cold because of how bad it will get on the world. And so there's going to be a lot of what you would call backsliding in the Christian world, what you would call you know, growing cold for Christ, if you will, whatever, losing the faith, departing the faith. Of course, I would, make the, I would make the argument that they were never really in the faith if they depart the faith, but nonetheless, this idea that Jesus, when he returns, the world will be so bad that many people will lose their faith and walk away and say, no, 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 I'm not really interested in this anymore. And, and this is the, the second coming of Jesus. So there's the first coming and the second coming. Here's my question. Many Christians are in the impression that Jesus comes and raptures them up into heaven, and then they hang out in heaven for seven years as they watch the earth suffer, and then, and then they come back again. Well, that would mean 
that there's not two comings, that right. would mean there are three. Right. three comings. And that's just not scriptural. Right. So wait a second. What is up with this idea that there's such a thing as a, and this is the term, a secret rapture of the church that spares the church at the end times from all the horrible things that will happen on the earth? And we have to ask ourselves this very important question. Is this actually in the Bible or have I just been taught this? Mm. Let's just marinate on that question for a moment because there's, and I tell you this in sincerity, as a, as a pastor, I've seen this. A lot of Christians believe stuff that they have been taught that actually isn't in the Bible. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Because we have to, we have to re- remember that Jesus warned us repeatedly and Paul warns us, and Peter warns us, and John warns us, that there's going to be many who will come and say in his name, I'm a prophet, I'm a leader, and Jesus says, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false teachers. They are false prophets. They are false apostles, and they will mislead many people, and especially in the end times, the misleading will be astronomical, will be more than ever before since the Jesus rose again. So you've got to realize something. There's a lot of stuff that we believe as Christians. There's a lot of things that Christians believe that they have been taught by pastors, by leaders, by TV evangelists, by whatever, by some book, and they never checked it out. They never went to the Bible. They never said, look, is this actually something that's in the Bible or have I just accepted someone else's teaching? This has got to be done with the rapture. And we might not, I'm just going to suggest something here. You might not like what you find if you're thinking you're going to avoid the tribulation. You just might not like what you find. Now, a lot of you people, I know you're already thinking, uh-oh, I know where he's coming from. He's one of those post-tribbers, <laughs> right? All right, so before you get there, let me just unpack what I'm talking about a little bit more. So Revelation chapter 4, we turn the page. Jesus talks about seven churches. He warns those seven churches. He commends, those seven, he commends all but one seven of those seven churches, and then he then we turn the page on Revelation chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 4, and here's what happens. Verse 1, John says, After this, that is, after Jesus addresses the seven churches, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, this is the voice from chapter 1, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what is to take place after this. Again, think about this. The church ages of Revelation 2 and 3, and now in Revelation 4, Jesus is saying to John, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then verse one of chapter five, then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll and written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And that's the seven seal judgment scroll that gets unrolled, unfurled and judgment comes upon the earth and the tribulation begins in chapter six. Okay. Most people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, a secret rapture of the church where Jesus takes those people who are faithful to him out of the earth so that they don't have to suffer, believe that the, the word in verse 1 here of chapter 4, come up here, John going up to heaven, because he says that once I was in the spirit, John going up to heaven, that is a picture of the church being raptured. There's only one problem. It's actually not a, church, a picture of the church being raptured. It is John being given a heavenly vision. He is being given a heavenly vision to be able, now listen to this very carefully, to be able to see the difficulties 
that Christians, God's people, will face on the earth from a heavenly perspective. Did you, did you catch what I just said there? Because it's so important that you catch it. What John is being given in Revelation chapter 4 is a heavenly perspective of the tribulation that will be experienced on the earth by God's people. And it is so important that you catch that. Because I'll tell you what keeps you depressed in your life. I will tell you what keeps you sad as a Christian. It's called a loss of perspective. It is called you have lost a sense that you have a divine destiny, that God knows exactly where you are, that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from his love, that though the world comes against you, your Father in heaven is for you, and that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Like when you lose that perspective, you are going to flip out. You're going to fly off the handle. You're going to get depressed. You're going to get anxious. You're going to get worried. As soon as you get disconnected from the reality that the Jesus who saves you is the one who protects you and empowers you to face whatever might come against you, as soon as you lose that, depression is yours. Depression, sadness, a feeling of I want to quit. And you've got to be very careful about that because God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want you disconnected from a heavenly perspective. He doesn't want you feeling like the whole world is going to come to an end. And this is so helpful for Christians who watch too much television. You, <laughs> you watch too much news. You tune into too many things. And we've, we, the problem today is we, we get inundated with news. News everywhere. We've got news in our pockets on our smartphones. News on our watches with our smartwatch. News on television. News everywhere. And so there's endless bad news, right? Because that's the only thing that sells, bad news. And if we're not careful, we will get disconnected from the heavenly perspective that we should have as God's people so that we can stand up and be strong in spite of the evil that is around us. Yeah. You know what I mean? So this is, this is what John is being given. He's been given a perspective of the age to come where God's people will suffer, but he's being given a heavenly perspective. In other words, John, I want you to know something. No matter what you see right now, there's someone seated on a throne in heaven, and he has in his right hand, verse 1 of chapter 5, he has in his right hand the scrolls. All the trouble, all the tribulation, all the persecution that is going to come upon the <clears throat> world, good news, Christian, is under the sovereign control of, of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is what Revelation is trying to help us see. That is why I said right from the beginning of the study that Revelation is teaching us about what is most real. So the question is, when is the rapture? And you've got some options. You've got some options. So if you were raised in the church like me, these are terms you're very familiar with. Uh, Jeremy, I don't know if you're familiar with these yes, terms. Yes, yes, very much yeah. so. Yes. The, the, we, we, even, we even kind of shorten them. We don't call them yeah. oh, yeah. pre-tribulation. We call pre -trib. it what? Pre-trib. Pre-trib. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and I don't know. Pre-trib. You were raised in the church, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, so the pre-tribbers didn't talk to the post-tribbers. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then the mid-tribbers, they were like, you know, you're just confused. You know, we're not going to talk to you. Pick a side. Yeah, right? you're like lukewarm. <laughs> yeah. mid, like, no, you're in the middle. What's wrong with you? Okay, so I want to unpack to you, un unpack for you though here on the deep end, the the four view, the three views. Actually, there's four. So there's three views. The pre-tribulation rapture. The basis of this view comes from Second Thessalonians two six to eight. 
Now, the reason why is because in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is talking about, to the church in Thessalonians, he's saying, look, some of you are under the impression that Jesus has come back, and he hasn't come back. And the reason why I know he hasn't come back is because it has been revealed to me that before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a man of lawlessness. This is in verse 3 of chapter 2. We don't have it on the screen. But he's gonna, there's going to be a man of lawlessness. He will come, and he will exalt himself above everything that is called God, and he will rebel, and he will take over the world, and we call this man the Antichrist. And here's what it says. Let's look at this verse in verse 6. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now notice that word, restraining. You know what is restraining him. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, we can see it ramping up to this point where there will be some men of lawlessness, some dictator, some world leader who will lead the world completely astray. But now look at these words in bold. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way or is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Okay, look at that word. Only he who now restrains him. Interesting question. Who the heck is the he, right? Who the heck is the he? Who is he who restrains this man of lawlessness from being revealed before Jesus comes again. Well, the classic pre-tribulation rapture view people say he has to be the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is where? Question? In, in, within us. Within, us. within the church, right? right? So he, within the church, will be taken out of the way in the rapture. And then because there's no Christians on the earth, then there will be... Uh, nothing but lawlessness and an open door for um, the lawless man to rule and reign upon the earth for seven some odd years. And, you know, the the classic pre-tribulation definition goes or timeline goes like this. He makes a pact with Israel and then he breaks this pact three and a half years into the pact and yada, yada, yada. And then he starts to unload persecution on God's people and the Jews. But but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's where the pre-tribulation philosophy fails. There's still conversions that happen on the, on the earth after this moment because the 144,000 Jews, they say the Jews, who are sealed are Christian witnesses that are sent throughout the earth to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem there. We know theologically that people cannot get saved apart from the new birth, which happens through what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Right? So the Holy Spirit can't be taken away from the world and then suddenly be in the world, you know what I'm saying, when people get saved. So there's a little bit of problem there with this idea that there's this pre-tribulation rapture. So what is the he if it's not the Holy Spirit? He could be the hand of God. He could be just how God in his power is restraining him through his right hand of power. And at some point, he's going to lift his hand of right of power and there's going to be lawlessness throughout the world. Okay, so that's the pre-tribulation rapture people. Then there's the mid-tribulation rapture people. And this is an alternative view that contends the church will be raptured halfway through, sorry, halfway through the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the tribulation. This has become uh, popular since World War II, actually. Um, uh, mid-tribulations believe that the frequent mention of 42 months 
in passages like Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 12, Revelation 11, Revelation 12, indicates that only half of Daniel's 70th, 70th week, three and a half years, will experience the terror usually associated with the entire tribulation period. But before we get there, I got to remind myself of what I had here planned. Um, when it comes to the pre-tribulation rapture, uh, remember that I said it started, and this view started in 1830. The reason why most people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is because of one man, interestingly enough. His name is John Nelson Darby, and he was an 1800s Anglican priest in Ireland. Uh, he was a very successful priest. His parish grew exponentially. Uh, eventually, he rejected this idea of a state church, and then he founded something called the Plymouth Brethren Movement, which I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this movement. It's a denomination, the Plymouth Brethren. There's actually a Plymouth Brethren church right down the street from us. I know the pastor. <clears throat> does it, does he, did he write a Bible, Darby? Uh, yeah, well, there's the Darby Study Bible. I don't know if he wrote it. He did a lot of writing, but, but nonetheless, he founded this movement called the, the Plymouth Brethren Movement. Now, there's Plymouth, Massachusetts. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Plymouth, England. Okay, so he starts this movement, and he brings people out of the Church of England with him because he was, he was upset with the corruption of church and state. He didn't like that marriage. He thought the church needs to be faithful to Christ and not faithful to the church. And so he brought them out, all good intentions, and he decided to found this idea of called premillennial dispensationalism. Okay, big, long theological words. What that basically means is premillennial dispensationalism means that there is... Um, going to be a, a rapture of the church before the tribulation, which also happens before the millennium. And dispensationalism, we have talked about in the Revelation study because dispensationalism means that there has been several ages or dispensations of history as God has worked in human history. And he basically came up with this idea. Before John Nelson Darby, this never was a thing. He came up with it. In the, 19, in the 1830s, he developed a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, this influenced America big time in the 1800s. Uh, he established prophetic conferences, which continue to this day. Uh, prophetic end times conferences. Have you ever heard of these things? They're all yeah. over the place. And so this is where you get all the end times, like the end times section at the Christian bookstore. <laughs> you ever see how big it is? There's like books by the thousands on when Jesus is coming back. All of this, believe it or not, is the brainchild of John Nelson Darby. Before he was around, people didn't really believe this stuff. He just kind of came up with it. And then he influenced a guy named C.I. Cyrus Schofield. C.I. Schofield. Now, this, Josh Pereira, is the guy who wrote the study Bible. The Schofield Study Bible, uh, which became a huge success in the evangelical Christian world of the 20th century. I mean, every preacher, my grandfather was a preacher for 30 years, and he handed me down a bunch of books. And on my shelf at home, I still have a, a pristine condition Schofield reference Bible. Mm. And in that Bible, there is the pre-tribulation view all unpacked for you, where to go, how to find the verses, and how to find the passages of Scripture that produce this philosophy that Jesus is going to rapture his church before the tribulation and we'll all escape the trouble of the tribulation. Okay, now I only bring this up to you to say this. No one held this view until 1830. And the only reason why we have this view is because of this guy, John Nelson Darby. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily false, because if you think about Martin Luther, who gives us the justification by faith view, I mean, pretty much before him, you have to go all the way back to the apostles, uh, before you find that view alive and well in the church. 
And so, you know, until he, he, until Martin Luther comes around, nobody really believes it. Then suddenly he comes around and he finds it in the Bible and then is restored back to the church as a truth. Well, this could very well be the pre-tribulation rapture view, but I'm just saying, get it in perspective that there's a good chance that the church fathers and the early church fathers, like the guys who wrote and studied with the apostles, did not hold this view. They did not hold this view. Why? Because in their minds, they were already going through the tribulation. They were already going through the, trub- the, the, the horrib- horrible trouble of the world. The, the fall of Jerusalem was a huge problem, was a huge mess, bad uh, time in Israel's history, uh, bloodshed and plagues and just vile evil across the world. So the idea that they would be spared through some secret rapture of this stuff was not, was not even, it didn't even make sense because they were going through it at the time of the first and second century. Anyway, pre-tribbers, just to give you guys perspective, your view, very new. Okay, your view, very new. <laughs> then there's the mid-tribulation rapture, uh, mid-tribulation rapture, and again, these are the people who believe that three and a half years into the tribulation, Jesus is going to come back, get his church out, and then it's going to get really bad. <laughs> you know? So first three and a half years, bad, and then the three and a half years, out, really, really bad. You know, have good news a is, bit. yeah. Good news is, Christians, you don't have to go through the really, really bad stuff. Okay, and then there's the post-tribulation views. Because, like I said to you, there is no division in the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? I call it the bounce-back view. Like, <laughs> where do we find this in Scripture? Where, where Jesus is up in heaven right now, and suddenly, and he comes back with his church, he's like, bounce you know, he comes, he comes down to the down to the cloud. Like here's the earth, and then the clouds are a little bit all over there. And Jesus, boom! Like, <laughs> and at the boom, we all go with him, and and then he goes back up to heaven. And seven years later, then he suddenly comes back again. Well, wait a second. This is why I say to you, what you have been taught in the Bible, have you actually checked the Bible to see if it's actually there? Because that is a great question. So I personally don't believe that there is. A bounce back view. Okay, there, there you go. So wait, you which, full which disclosure. Are, which of the four views do you hold closest to? Well, let me just get through them because there's one more we haven't talked about. Um, this uh, post tribulation view, right? Uh, that Christians will experience the tribulation. Just check out what John says in verse nine of of the first chapter of Revelation. John, Revelation one nine. I, John, your brother and partner in what? The tribulation. Wait a second. John is saying, I am your partner in the tribulation. What does that mean? It means he's there during the tribulation. He's experiencing tribulation. And so does that mean then that the tribulation is one seven-year-long period right before Jesus comes for the end-time church? I don't know. Why would John say he's a partner? John's been dead for how many hundreds of years? 1,900 years. So how can he be a partner in the tribulation and also not be there when the tribulation happens? These are questions that we have to ask. Again, we're not going to necessarily answer every question. We just have to ask and we have to lay a foundation for, let's open our minds before we just assume what things are in the book of Revelation. Let's open our minds to actually listen to Revelation. Amen? Like, let's let, let's let Revelation do its talking before we just assume, oh, this is that and this is that and this is that. Because maybe we were taught something, maybe somebody said something and we just bought it, we just accepted it, and we didn't even check out Scripture to see if it was actually in there. Okay, you said which are the four views. The reason why you say four views, I haven't talked about the fourth view. Here's the fourth view of when the rapture is. This is, this is a crazy view. <laughs> very, very minor amount of Christians believe in this view. The partial mid-trib... <laughs> 
rapture view. <laughs> Sounds like I cut a steak. I know. You <laughs> nice choice. Heaven's <laughs> choice. Christians, right? These partial are the ones mid-trib. that get saved. Um, the partial midrib view, which is only the truly faithful will be raptured and spared the tribulation. <laughs> Is that like our cold open then? Was our cold that was open like our, our cold open. Mid-trip? Exactly, yeah. exactly. That was Josh Pereira, because he's not quite as saved as I am, yeah. will go through the tribulation. <laughs> and because I am super saved, hallelujah, I will be watching from heaven. Sucks to be you, Josh Pereira. <laughs> <laughs> We're hanging out down here with a Nikolai Carpathia. Yeah, and and yes, and uh, Jeremy, you were left behind too. So, yes, yeah, I was. It sucks was very to be helpful. You so, <laughs> We're in the same boat, Jeremy. <laughs> bad, bad news for you people. Partial mid-trip, post-trip, mid-trip, pre-trip. What are you? Okay, Pastor Tim, what are you? Okay, uh, again, before, I, I, I think I've already said it. I, I am post-tribulation, and I am post-tribulation because I've read the Bible. <laughs> wow. Shots <Wow>. fired. <laughs> let me explain to you why. Because here's the question. Will Christians avoid great tribulation? Well, if we go back, can we go back to the um, whiteboard real quick? If we go back to this, remember, and this is why we, everything that we do here on the deep end builds on something. Everything we do on the deep end here builds on something else. If we go back to this idea that there is such a thing as the idealist view, that Revelation as a whole is helping the church um, handle their age in which they live until Jesus comes again, what makes our generation, just let me ask you this question. What makes our generation, let's say, let's say we are the generation in which Jesus returns, right? Just for the sake of argument. Mm-hmm. What makes our generation so special that we will be spared what previous generations have already experienced? Such as, if you say the preterist view of Revelation, pre-AD. At AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem, Roman armies invade Jerusalem and obliterate it. They kill women. They slaughter children. They destroy the whole city. They, I mean, it is a rampage. Suffering like you can't imagine upon God's people. And they suffered in the, in the this is in AD 70. And then suddenly we're supposed to think, oh, don't worry about it. We're the special people of God at the end times. And we get to escape it. I, to me, that just doesn't make sense. Maybe what we got to look at here is the idealist symbolic view to say, Revelation is helping us to embrace whatever age we live in so that we can be faithful in whatever trouble we may experience. So some scriptural references about tribulation that are pertinent here. Hebrews 10.32 says this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you were endured, check these words out, a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Um, the writer of Hebrews is addressing the church. Remember that there was times when you were publicly exposed. You were, you were publicly harassed. You struggled. You suffered. This is the first century church. Um, John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says the following words. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have, what's the word? Tribulation. Yeah, tribulation. In the world, Jesus says to the disciples, you will have tribulation. Now, is he talking just to the disciples that, he exper- that he's talking to in, the, in, in John chapter 16? No, he's talking to the rest of the church as well. You're going to have some tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Um, a couple other verses, just pertinent verses about suffering in the Christian. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 23. 
Paul talking about his return to Jerusalem. And here's what he says. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Like, just think about it. Just wrap your head around that verse for a second because I, I love this verse. The Holy Spirit spoke to Paul. And he spoke to Paul about the fact that everywhere Paul goes, imprisonment and afflictions await him. Uplifting. Yeah. Like, this is why my, as a pastor, my red flag radar goes up anytime anybody says, the Holy Spirit told me. <laughs> okay, because I want you to check it against scripture. You've ever had this happen? Have you ever had this happen? Oh, People in church come up to you and say, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you. Oh, man. <laughs> Don't come at me with that. <laughs> because I'm going to be like, wait, 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 wait. Or, you know, when somebody feels like they, they want to be uh, on the stage singing. At a church. And they say, well, the Holy Spirit told me that I should be. Like, oh, 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 he did. I didn't, I didn't know the Holy Spirit was a PR agent. Okay. I, I didn't know that he was a talent scout out there. He's trying to find the greatest singers in the church. Because here's what we do. We manipulate the, whole, the, the term, the Holy Spirit told me, for the things that we actually just want for ourselves. And like... Think about, just check your, the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't tell you stuff. And I hope that the Holy Spirit, and I know he does. I hope that you are listening to the Holy Spirit. But just know that sometimes the Holy Spirit is going to warn you the trouble's ahead. Mm. This is a biblical mind. This is a biblical concept. And Paul was in prison. He was tortured. He was, he was chased out of town. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was whipped. You could say that Paul, his whole life was filled with tribulation. For the cause of Christ. And by the way, he was faithful to God's call on his life. He did what God wanted him to do, and he experienced tribulation. Ro uh, he actually writes this in Romans 8.35. Let's, let's, let's take a look at this. This is one of, Christians, this is one of the, the Christian world's favorite verses, right? Is that what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus passage? But look at what he lists in the list of things that will, will not separate us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ, or love of Christ? This is Romans 8.35. Shall tribulation or distress persecution famine nakedness danger so the idea there is you will experience tribulation and yet it will not separate you from the love of god in christ jesus <clears throat> so my final point for this episode of the deep end is this christians have often experienced tribulation and christians have often experienced tribulation so much that it was more than they could handle Okay, and this blows away the idea. Listen, Christians who are currently depressed that I just said I'm a post-tribulation guy. Um, the reason being is because if you look at, at, at church history, if you look at Christian history, you will see that the church that Jesus loves has endured struggle, trials, and persecutions in every age, pretty much on every continent, and the only reason why things like pre-tribulation rapture philosophies sell in America is because I think that Christians in America have had it so easy for so long, we can't even imagine suffering for Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's really what I believe. And I'm really, I'm really passionate about this because I think that this is why we see in America Christians departing the faith. This is why we see in America... This, you know, the atheists love to brag about how Christianity is down. The poll numbers for Christians are down. The people are losing faith in America. And the atheists come on this television set and they say, isn't this wonderful? People are finally coming to their senses. No, that's not what's happening. The reality is that the church, the true church, will always be faithful and the false church will lose faith when things go really well for them. That's just a fact. 
Because when everything is good for you and everything is fine, people walk away from Christ because they think they don't need him. But when the trouble comes and the tribulation comes, you watch. Because what happens there is the Lord sifts, the Lord separates through the tribulation those who are really his and who will endure for his name because they know that he is better than anything this world can give them. He will sift those people from the people who are just in Christianity for what they can get out of it, for the life that they want, the good life that they want, the goodies from God and not God himself, and watch what happens as the tribulation happens. This is what's going to happen. The true church will stand. The true church will shine the true church will show itself to be what God has made it to be and the false believers will scatter to the winds. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. And this is a historical, I believe this is a historical truth. Christians have often experienced more than they can handle. Case in point, and the final passage I want to share with you, right? 2 Corinthians 1.8. Look what Paul says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction. Again, trouble, tribulation. We experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Look at those words, beyond our strength. More than we can, what? Handle, right? More than we can handle. That we despaired of life itself. We wanted to die. We, it was so bad, we wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received, verse 9, the sentence of death. But that, all that trouble, all that trial, all that tribulation, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, he will deliver us again. And, and this, this is how we've got to approach Revelation. I said in the beginning of this study, I say it again, Revelation is showing us what is most real. And no matter what happens in the world, Christian, I've got good news for you. The same God who delivers Paul from deadly peril, from troubles and afflictions in his age, has been faithful for 2,000 years to his church and will continue to be faithful until he comes again. What is our hope? Our hope is that there is one, as it says in Revelation chapter 4, there is one who is seated on the throne. His name is Jesus. Above all the other powers, above all the other, other uh, leaders of the world, there is a universe leader. His name is Jesus. And if you know him, you've got nothing to worry about. Amen. Amen. Have a question? Why don't you ask us? We've got to get to questions next week. We do. I'm sure we've got questions coming in. 508-316-9333. If you want to text it to us anonymously, we will not share your name. We would just ask your question and answer it here on the deep end. You can also always ask questions in the comments if you don't mind sharing your name. Uh, we love your questions. Next week, I promise. I said this last week, but this time I mean it. <laughs> Next week, we will get to your questions. I just, I, there's so much to talk about in Revelation. I mean, this is, a, this is an intense study, and uh, we want to talk about it faithfully, and we want to study the Word of God faithfully. So... Uh, if you haven't yet already, please do connect with The Deep End on Facebook.com slash The Deep End TV or YouTube.com slash Waters Church. Search The Deep End channel and go to or go to TheDeepEnd.tv on your web browser and that will lead you to all the other places. Please subscribe. Please connect with us. It helps us get the word out. We hope you enjoyed today. May God bless you. This was The Deep End. <laughs>